Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel? That's right after Ezekiel. The book of Daniel. And we're in Daniel chapter 2. It's in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel, chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 31 through 49 this morning. Entitled this message, God's Blueprint for the Future. And we're going to learn um, some things from Daniel about what's going to happen in the future. Now, what if you could know the future? You ever thought about that? What if you were able to actually know what was going to happen before it happened? I started to think about that, and I was thinking, one of the things I think that some people might do is they go check out all the stocks, right? They want to know ahead of time what to buy, and then they'd buy it when it was cheap, and then they'd know when to sell it because it would reach top dollar. That'd be something somebody would do. Maybe some people would say, well, I just want to kind of know, you know, how best that I could, you know, maybe honor God. And so I'd look at the things that I, where I could grow and maybe some decisions I'd make in the future. I, I wouldn't do those and I'd do only the right things. And, but what if you were given a 100% guarantee? No doubts, it's going to happen. Well, that's what we're going to see today. Daniel's going to give a prophetic message. It's going to happen, guys. What Daniel shares in today's scripture, it's not a maybe or gee whiz, I hope so, this will happen. Because what we're going to see throughout this message is it's basically a five-part message. Daniel's going to give basically five different prophecies. Four of them have already happened. Well, that's a pretty good bet that that fifth one's going to happen. Because four in history documented it's done. It happened just as he prophesied. And we're going to take a look at that today. If you remember, Daniel Already in chapter 2, what's happened so far is Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And with that dream, it disturbed him. We might call it a nightmare. It, it disturbed him to the point that he calls in all his advisors. Now remember, these are considered the wise men of the kingdom, and, and they're the sorcerers and the conjurers. And, it, and he kind of gathers them all together, and he says, Okay, guys, I had this dream. Now give me the interpretation of the dream. And they say, oh, king, live forever. Tell us the dream. And he says, ain't going to happen. You tell me the dream and its interpretation. And so a second time they come back around, but king, that's never happened. Please tell us the dream. He's not going to do it. And so there's this little battle between the, the wise men and the king. And finally the king gets mad and he says, okay, I'm done. And he puts a decree and he says, I'm going to kill all these guys. Well, it happens that Daniel's just finishing training. He happens to be a part of this group and now off with his head also. And if you remember the story, Daniel has boldness. He trusts God and he, he gets an audience with the king and he asks the king if he'd allow him time to seek, remember, the God of heaven. That maybe the God of heaven would give him an answer, an interpretation. And that's exactly what happened in verse 19 of chapter 2. It says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And so God gave Daniel what this dream is. And in today's message, we're going to see Daniel give the king the interpretation. And we'll learn, we'll see why God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and why God gave Daniel the interpretation. So let's look at the text. First, we'll take this in sections, verses 31 through 35. Let's read it together. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. 
The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver, and its belly and its thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verses 34 and 35 say, And you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the stone on, on the feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all the, at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, and not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. So why did God give Nebuchadnezzar this dream, and why does God now give Daniel the interpretation? Well, the first thing that I think we see is that the dream was revealed to demonstrate that God is sovereign. This dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, this is not an ordinary dream. This is a God dream. I mean, God kind of breaks into this guy's mind and inserts this dream. There's a reason behind it. And I think the main, main reason really is that God is trying to let this king know, you're not sovereign. I'm sovereign. Now, Daniel is going to give this interpretation to the dream. And, and what comes from this is more than just to save Daniel's life. It's to instruct the king. Um, I'm going to let you guys kind of know up front, I see a lot of God's grace in this section of Scripture. And this grace is being given to a megalomaniac, a person who's prideful. And God's giving that grace to a very sinful king. And we'll kind of see this as it kind of works itself out. Now, I want you to kind of look up front with me at verses 28 through 30, because Daniel kind of gives the, kind of the background, the reason he's given this interpretation. He comes to the king and he says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and visions in your mind while you were on your bed. And as for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And I see a threefold purpose here for this dream. Number one, the interpretation was given to Daniel really to, to save his life. I mean, Basically, the king said, off with everybody's head. I'm just going to bring in a whole new fresh crop of guys of wisdom. And so what God is going to do here is he's going to let Daniel know this dream, and this is going to save his life. But it's not for the purpose that just Daniel's life is going to be saved. God wants to use Daniel. Daniel's going to be a light in a dark place. He's going to be an ambassador for God in a pagan culture. You understand that if you know Christ, you're an ambassador for Christ in a pagan culture. Same thing. So God's going to use Daniel in that way. But there's a second reason. It's to provide Nebuchadnezzar with the understanding of his dream, but really to clarify that he's not sovereign over everything. That he's basically a pawn on God's God's chessboard, and God is sovereign. God is over all. Nebuchadnezzar has to get this. And there's a third thing. It provides future generations, us, with a firm understanding that there is a God in heaven. And things aren't just random chance. Things just aren't evolution happening on their own. But there is a God in heaven who cares. 
and he's actively involved in the affairs of men. And even though there's evil that takes place, our God can take that evil action, an evil intent of a heart, and he literally can flip it on its head and he can use it for good. Now also, I want you guys to understand that this is a picture of leadership change. Basically, Jerusalem was the center of God's kingdom on earth through the people of Israel. And God is shifting this and now giving leadership to Gentiles. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, destroyed its temple, leadership shifted from the Jews to the Gentiles right here. Now Jesus said this in Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We're living in the times of the Gentiles still. And we're going to see a a number of successive kingdoms, if you will, empires. They're all Gentile empires. They're going to raise up through this prophetic vision that Daniel sees. And we live right now in verse 28 in the latter days. Daniel said the latter days. We're in those latter days right now. Now, Daniel tells the king of his dream, and he starts speaking about a great statue, a massive statue. I don't, have anybody ever been to a monument where it's just like it's man-made? You're like, wow, look at that. Well, I haven't really been to a gigantic man-made monument, but I, I don't know if you've ever seen beautiful statues that were carved like in marble. When we lived in England as missionaries, we, we had a chance to go over to France for a week, and we went to the Louvre. And in the Louvre, they have some beautiful statues that are carved out of marble. We saw some even by Michelangelo. They were awesome to look at. But they were kind of small compared to what I think the king has seen. I mean, they were either life-size or maybe a little bit bigger than life. But the king has seen this statue, that it is massive. Look at verse 31. It says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. And so the king, I guess when he saw this vision, he was just like taken back. He was in awe. And so Daniel begins to explain. Think about this king. Already the king's tracking him. This guy knows what I saw. This guy actually knows my dream. I I think right here the king's mind's being blown. He's like, wow. This man Daniel, he knows it. And then Daniel gives a description of the, of the statue to the king. And, and so what Daniel does is he first begins with the head and he works his way down all the way to the feet. And, and what we're going to see with this statue is that it, it changes metals as you go down and they decrease in value but they increase in strength until you get to the feet. And then with the feet there's going to be a mixture of clay and iron and it's going to be probably the weakest point on the statue. And so he says in verse 32, the 32a, the very beginning point, that the head of the statue was made of fine gold. Now, I don't know how to tell fine gold from not fine gold. And so I'm not sure how they knew that, but maybe it just glistened in the sun. And you can say, wow, that's pure gold. And so the, the head of the statue is of fine gold. Now, he doesn't speak about the face, what it looks like, but I'm betting that this face is the face of Nebuchadnezzar. The breast and the arms were of silver, Now, silver is not as valuable as gold, but it's actually a stronger metal than gold. And so it's less valuable. I don't think he's going to be talking about some kingdoms here. I don't think it was as ornate and awesome as maybe the first kingdom, but it's stronger. It has more might. The belly and the thighs were of bronze, and, and bronze not as valuable as gold or silver, 
but was considered a good metal for war. Um, it's good to make spears and, and swords and things. And then the legs are of iron, and then the feet are partly of iron, partly of clay, as long with, also along with the toes. And, and we know that iron is considered, of all these metals, the strongest one, and it usually was used in those times, particularly as implements of war. And then Daniel says a fifth kingdom, and he starts talking about the statue was struck by a stone made without hands. Verses 34 and 35, let's read that. It says, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands and it struck the statue on the feet, iron and clay, and it crushed them. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and gold were crushed. All at the same time, it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away and not a trace of them was found. But the stone that was struck, the statue became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Now, it seems like just out of nowhere, the stone just appears. And the stone comes crashing down almost like from outer space and hits the statue right in the feet. And then the statue explodes upwards and just disintegrates into little pieces like you know, chaff from wheat and then just kind of disappears with the, with the wind. And, and then you would think, okay, with the destruction of the statue, this dream is done, but it's not done. The stone all of a sudden grows and it grows and it grows and it takes over the whole world and it becomes the focal point of this vision. It is the main thing here. So after this point, Daniel revealed the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, I think at this point, is just stunned, probably speechless. If you think about it, if somebody came to you and said, hey, you had a dream last night, let me, let me tell you about that. <laughs> and then just lay it out, you're like, whoa, right? But Daniel has to do more than just give the observation. The king declared that he wanted an interpretation. Now you understand that when we do inductive Bible study, it's observation, interpretation, then application. That's basically what Daniel's doing. He's done the observation. Now he's going to go do the interpretation. But what do we get from this little section right here from this? I think the key is really found back in verse 28. Verse 28, Daniel said this. He said, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in latter days? This king needs to get over himself. This king really thinks he's hot stuff. He thinks he is it. He needs to understand that he is not the sovereign one. The God of heaven is the sovereign one. And it's interesting that Daniel says the God of heaven, and the reason he uses that word God of heaven is understand this culture. They're polytheistic. They have a ton of idols Matter of fact, in Babylon, their number one, if you will, idol was the god called Marduk. And he was the storm god. And there was a a temple built to Marduk in Babylon that was three miles in circumference, one building. And it was totally covered in gold. And so I think that this king is probably worshiping, first of all, Marduk. And Daniel's saying, you missed it, man. Because there is a king that is sovereign. There is a God who's over all gods. Your God's not even a real God. He's a phony God. But my God can even tell you your dream. And by the way, that dream was from him. Wake up, king. This God is sovereign. And God wants Nebuchadnezzar to acknowledge the sovereignty of God, to give God his rightful place. Why? Because he deserves all praise and honor and glory. Does God have that place in your life? 
Can you say in all honesty, right now in your heart, God is first in my life. He is sovereign over all things that I have of who I am. And there's nothing else in his place. According to film critic Nathaniel Rogers, the last 12-year period from 2002 to 2014, 47 actors gave acceptance speeches at the the Oscar award ceremonies. And these Oscar-winning stars almost always gave thanks to someone for their achievements. Kate Winslet, she thanked her director, Peter Jackson. Colin Firth thanked his producer, Harvey Weinstein. Christopher Waltz praised the director, Quentin Tarantino, and he called him the creator. Other award winners have thanked other celebrities. Oprah thanked two other stars for her help to become a star. You had Sidney Poitier, he thanked two other stars. You have Meryl Streep, she won four awards. Each time she thanked another star for her achievements. God was only thanked three times out of 47 in this. And some of you might say, well, it's because they didn't have faith. I don't think that's right. I think what it is, is that to them, their God was the director or the producer or the film industry. Or like George Clooney, he didn't think anybody. It was the man in the mirror. That's the God. He can do it all. That is the culture we live in. You can do it. It's all about you. If you believe enough, it'll happen, blah, 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 blah. But is God sovereign? Does he have first place? Romans 12.3 says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has allotted each one a measure of faith. Nebuchadnezzar was preoccupied with himself. And Daniel, through this interpretation, is going to try to break through that hard heart. The dream was revealed to demonstrate that God is sovereign. That's the first thing. Second thing, the interpretation was given to produce a humble attitude. Now, this is verses 36 through 45. We, we live at a time, guys, where feeling good about yourself is the number one priority. You have to discover happiness. Pride is seen as a virtue, but God desires a humble heart. A heart given over to him. Let's look at the verses 36 through 45. It says, This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay." As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw iron mixed with common clay, and they will combine with one another in the seat of men. But they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms. 
but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel begins to give this interpretation of the dream. And what he's going to explain is that the image represents five empires, five world empires, kind of in succession, one after another. And they go from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to Jesus Christ, establishing his kingdom here on this earth. Now remember, Israel is no longer God's leading nation. It's no longer the ruler of the world. No longer is Jerusalem the center of God dealing with men. So four great world powers are going to come into existence. In verses 36 through 38, particularly verse 36, Daniel says, this was the dream now that we will tell its interpretation before the king. So Daniel interprets the meaning of the head of gold in verse 38 as as being Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of Babylon, this empire known as Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was a true monarch. I mean, he was the guy in charge. He had absolute authority over everything. He could give life. He could take life. And in terms of human kings, he was called the king of kings. Now, that was called by God here in the book of Daniel, but also it's in Ezekiel. And so in terms of human kings, he was considered a great, great king. Nebuchadnezzar was a genius. His empire lasted 70 years, and 45 of that, it was under his rule. His armies were unstoppable. He took control of Assyria. He wiped out Egypt. And wherever he went, he got control. He was dominant. And his empire was truly a reign of gold. The historian Herodotus tells us about Babylon, the city. Some interesting stuff here. Babylon was 56 miles in circumference. It had 14 miles here, 14 miles here, 14 miles here, 14 miles here. There was a brick wall surrounding the city that was 300 feet tall. And it went into the ground 35 feet so nobody could tunnel under. And then directly behind it was another wall, same size, 70 feet. So two walls surrounding the city. There were 250 towers in Babylon. Each one was 450 feet tall and they were all covered in gold. It had a 150-foot wide and deep moat that surrounded the city. The Euphrates River ran right through the middle of the city and ferry boats went in and out of the city. It had what was known as the Hanging Gardens. It was considered a wonder of the world. It had three tiers all in the air and all the water was brought there by hydraulics. It had eight massive gates covered in gold. It had a hundred gates that were brass and the eight gates were on the outside of the city, the hundred gates on the inside of the city. The streets were paved with three foot by three foot stones. The temple of Marduk, which I said was three miles in circumference, was totally covered in gold. There were two golden images, one of Baal, which was another false god, and a golden table, and each one weighed over 50,000 pounds. There were two solid golden lions and two solid human figures, each were over 18 feet tall, and they were solid gold. And Nebuchadnezzar's palace was over eight miles in circumference and it was covered in gold. This was truly 
a reign of gold. And it was controlled, if you will, by Nebuchadnezzar. But what he doesn't get is that all this was given by God. That he had this because God allowed him to have this. Now notice the dominant position given to God in verses 37 and 38. Daniel says, you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell or beasts in the field or birds in the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Daniel makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar understands with real clarity it's God that gave you that. Why? To humble him. To have him realize, yeah, I'm the king over this, but I'm only the king because he gave it to me. Because God has allowed me to have this. Does God have that rightful place? Has he humbled you to that point where you understand that everything that you are, everything that you have, it's him. It is the God of heaven that allows you to be who you are. Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Now we see the second part. This is the silver part. This represents a kingdom that would succeed Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. This is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persian. And it was brought to zenith in power by King Darius. If you look at verse 32, it says its breast and its arms were of silver. And then the first part of verse 39 says, After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. So the second kingdom is represented by silver. It no longer, I guess, has the wealth or the opulence, let's say, of Babylon, of gold. But understand, even though it might be less in value, it actually was a stronger kingdom and it lasted longer. Babylon lasted 70 years. The Medes and the Persian lasted 200 years. And it's interesting, it really was a kingdom of silver. Darius enacted what was known as tribute, which is taxes. And these taxes, he demanded, would be paid in silver with coins, with his head on the coin. And so they amassed massive amounts of silver. It became a kingdom of silver. But it was a split kingdom. The arms, the Medes and the Persians. It wasn't one man, one dominant figure, one monarch. Although Darius was the leading factor, the Medes still had influence and some power. And over time, the Persians became stronger. It still was always split. It was never fully united like Babylon. The Medes and the Persians were silver. Third, the kingdom of bronze. Verse 32 says the belly and the thigh of bronze. And verse 39 says the third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, bronze represents, I think, the Greeks. If you were to see a picture of a Greek soldier, he'd have a helmet of bronze, a shield of bronze. He'd have either a spear or a sword of bronze. Bronze represented their war machine. They were a kingdom of bronze. And it's the center section of the statue, what we call the core, right? Any of you that work out know that's where the strength is, right, for your body? This represents Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was a brilliant man and an excellent tactician in war. He was born in Macedonia, and after the death of his father, Philip, in 336 B.C., he quickly put together an army, and he faced Darius III in battle, and he won the Battle of Issus in 333 B.C., And he marched south um, against the kingdoms of the eastern Mediterranean. And then he went east all the way to the Indus River, all the way to India. And he conquered everyone in his path. And it says that when he reached that point, he wept because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. Here's an interesting fact. Alexander the Great made his home base, after he conquered everything, Babylon. 
He moves back into Babylon and he died shortly after in Babylon. Greece was bronze. And then you have the fourth kingdom. The statue was made of iron and then iron and clay. Most scholars believe that this is Rome. In fact, as the earliest writings of the church fathers believe that this kingdom was Rome. Why is that? Because Rome follows Greece as the dominant power, and the stress here is on strength. And so you have Babylon, 70 years, Medo-Persia, 200 years, Greece lasted 200 years. Now you have Rome. Rome, in around 27 BC, the emperor of Rome founded under Empress Augustus, Rome was strong and dominant. Look at verse 33, it says, it's legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and clay. And then 40 through 43 kind of explain this fourth kingdom. It says that then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters everything. And like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all those in pieces. And that you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw iron mixed with common clay. As the toes and the feet were partly of iron, partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. In that you saw iron mixed with common clay and they will be combined to one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. So you have a picture here at the bottom of the statue and you have the legs. And basically, if you will, bronze ended here and the rest is iron to the feet. Okay, so you have this picture of Rome being iron. They were a strong and dominant power. But it's interesting, as you have two legs that split, Rome split. In the second century, you had east and west. And they were always vying for power. The west situated in Rome, the capital in Rome, and the east in Constantinople. Remember Constantine? Constantinople, which we know as modern Turkey today, it had two different power structures. Now, Rome in the west only lasted about 500 years. It was defeated, it was sacked, the city of Rome was sacked in 410 AD by the Visigoths and in 455 by the Vandals. Both of those are dramatic tribes. And the emperor Romulus Augustus was was removed in 476 uh, AD by dramatic warrior Odasser. So basically the west collapsed by 476, about 500 years. But the east, the east lasted all the way to 1476, 1500 years and it was overrun by the Ottoman Turks. But Rome had a problem. It had weaknesses. It was a strong power. Wherever Rome went, it conquered. I mean, that iron is like an iron fist, man. And when, it, when Rome came, people were either subjugated or they fought and lost. And Rome was a dominant power. But it also had many weaknesses. And so Rome kind of went through some stages. It had a united stage, which was represented by the legs. And then it, it splits, which shows the two different powers. And then it gets to the feet. And there starts to be weaknesses within Rome. Um, as it progressed to the clay, basically Rome was strong organizationally, but it was weak morally. Immorality and homosexuality became common practice, particularly for the upper classes bestiality, weird, lewd, sexual things were actually performed in the Colosseum for the people's pleasure. Forced prostitution, gambling, the gladiatorial games were brutal killings done in that Colosseum, all for entertainment for the people. And you had the Caesar on one side and the Democratic Senate on the other side and they never got along. There was always fighting, there was never unity with Rome, so it actually became very weak. Now we know 
that the last part of this, the, the feet that turns into the toes, which are ten different toes, right, are going to one day be ten, if you will, kingdoms or, or states that will one day rule the world. Some people call it a one-world government with a ten confederation state. And, and there's all kinds of people. I mean, everybody has speculation on this. I, I've heard a lot about Europe, a ten-state union coming together, and, and all this is going to happen. And you particularly see that in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 17. I'm going to read those for you. Daniel 7 says, After this I came looking in a night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, a dreadful tyrant, terrifying and extremely strong and he had large iron teeth and devoured and it crushed and it trampled down the remainder with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that were there before and it had ten horns kind of using the picture of a beast with ten horns kind of representing the same thing you see with the feet with ten toes Revelation seventeen twelve says the, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. So there's coming a day where eventually there'll be 10 states, 10 kingdoms, some kind of one world government. And at that time, we're going to see the Lord return and he'll establish an everlasting kingdom. But that day is not yet and that's kind of the remainder part of the statue. Now I could spend a lot of time trying to break this all down and I'm not going to do that today. We can deal with that in Daniel 7. What I want to do with you today is do you just understand that four of those visions have come to place? I mean, four of the predictions, boom, gold, silver, bronze, iron, wow. That's prophecy, guys. It's happened. It's historically founded. It's there. Do you get that? That's four of hundreds of prophecies that have come true in the Bible. That should cause you to be humble. <laughs> that should cause you to go, wow, wow. Do you understand that this is the only book of antiquity that has prophecy that has been proven? I'm talking hundreds. Hundreds just for Christ alone. That should humble us to the God of heaven. This king should be humble here. You have this fifth established kingdom that we're looking forward to. In the beginning, I said there's a 100% guarantee. It's going to happen. Christ is coming back. He's going to return. He's going to establish a kingdom. One day Jesus will establish an everlasting kingdom. And it says it's in the days of those kings in verse 44. And I think he's talking about the toes, those ten different toes. And most scholars feel that. And it says that this, this rock wasn't made without hands. It's supernatural. It's going to be a God kingdom, not a human kingdom. But it's going to be physical and here on earth. And we know that there's going to be a thousand-year reign and that our Lord will reign here on this earth for a thousand years. And we know that he will then establish a new heaven and a new earth that will go on and on. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Because four of those prophecies have happened. And now this fifth one for sure is going to happen. Now notice that Daniel gives credit again to God. Verse 45 says, The great God has made known to the king all that will take place in the future. But Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man. And he was unwilling to give over, if you will, and be humble. So why does God do this? To break him of his pride. This man needs to be broken of pride. In 1990, I came to Christ. You know how that happened? I was a successful sales guy. So at the summer of 1990, I finally came to know Jesus. 
in, in the early part of 1990, man, things were popping in Rob Miller's life. Man, I had killer sales. Things were going good. We had a beautiful house. Our kids were doing great. Things were awesome. And then my number one account, which counted for over half of my business, said, I'm going out to bid to your number one competitor. And you know what happened? I suddenly realized I got no control. I got none. Now, we've been going to church for three years, and suddenly it just realized on me. I've never really sought God's help in anything. And I began to seek God for help to save this account. But instead, God gave me grace. And he showed me Christ. And I just realized it. I said, wow, there's a Lord God in heaven. And I submitted myself. I humbled myself to him and I received Christ. You know what happened? A total shift. God saved that account, praise God. And I got a lot more. I mean, business kept growing. God was so faithful. But the way I viewed it was totally different. It wasn't my accounts that I landed. It was the accounts that God gave me. My perspective changed. God humbled me. And everything that I got and everything that I am is his. The dream was revealed to demonstrate God's sovereignty. The interpretation was given to produce a humble attitude. The last one we see, and I'm going to be quick, is the response was given with a right and a wrong attitude. Now, this response is from Nebuchadnezzar. God demands your worship, guys. Look at verses 46 through 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. And he gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a King of kings and revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel. He gave him many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. He made him a chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was king in the court. So see the king's reaction to this interpretation. He falls on his face and he pays homage to Daniel and he burns incense to him. Now I think that's actually a right response to this culture. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's worshiping Daniel, but he's honoring Daniel. And so he gives Daniel honor and he basically praises him for being able to tell him the dream. And then he goes farther and he acknowledges Daniel's God. He begins to say, wow, that God is a God of gods. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, good, good. Right on. Praises Daniel, basically praises God. I think the king's got it. But then I started to really think and look at that. There's something missing. He didn't do any incense to his God. He didn't give that God the rightful place. He doesn't acknowledge him. He doesn't suddenly set up a statue. He doesn't suddenly build something to this God. He gives him no worship. The king was odd, but he wasn't converted. It was an emotional response, but there was no substance of conviction. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, I see that a lot. My life's falling apart. Here's an emotional response, but no full conviction, no full giving over. God truly isn't the God of heaven to them. He isn't truly the one that's sovereign for them. He doesn't have the worship. I met a man on Friday right here at the church. He was so emotional, guys, so emotional. And he came to the church because he'd been over at the gas station. Kind of a backstory. This man had been to our church for a few years, a number of years back. And I, I, I recognize his face, and his name was Chris. And he'd been out of the area. I think he's living in Barstow, working in the oil fields, some, something with oil out there in Barstow. And things were going good until last year. Suddenly, jobs were low. And, and he heard about an electrician 
construction job here and he got hired. So his family's there, but he travels here and the guy said, I'll give you the gas to get there. I'll put you up in a, in a hotel for a couple weeks and I'll pay you at the end of each week. And so Chris was great. So this was the first week. Friday was the last day of the first week. Well, that Friday morning, he gets a call from his fiance. His daughter's sick. She's in the hospital. She's got pneumonia. His boss didn't show up to pay the bill for the hotel and didn't pay him. So he had to give all the money he had left for the hotel. And he finds himself in this gas station without enough money to get gas to go home. And he's sitting there saying, God, what do I do? And he comes here to church because he remembered, hey, Calvary Chapel's over here. You think that's God? So I sat with Chris right out here on the benches. And Chris is weeping and saying, I don't know what's going on, man. I don't know what to do. My daughter's sick. I got no money. And why is all this happening? And I just said, stop him there, brother. And I said, how's your walk with Christ? I said, it isn't. Things were good, man. I was busy. I'm too busy for God. I mean, when the oil fields were popping, I was a busy man. And God got put back to second and third and fourth place because he just didn't have time for the Lord. And he had a total reorg right there. And there was confession time and a repentance time. And I'm coming back to calling God the God of heaven and seeking him first, right there. Now, many of you know that my mother came to Christ two months ago. Great, so exciting. And that I had the opportunity to baptize my mother two weeks ago. Winner, winner. I just want to give you the backstory of how that happened. Now, understand, God is trying to break through to this king. He's trying to break through a hard and prideful and I can do it myself kind of heart. This king thinks he's sovereign. My daughter graduated from college a couple months ago and we all went. I took my mother with us. So we got back on a Friday. Understand, my mom's 90. I've been in the Lord 25 years. I don't know how many times I've shared Jesus with my mom. Honestly, I cannot count. And so my mom has heard the message in every way I can package the message. But God had to break in. So we get back on a Friday. My mom likes to sleep on our couch. She doesn't like to sleep in the bed that we bought for her, by the way. And she, like, she sleeps on the couch in the living room. And so I had to get up early. had to come on Saturday morning to a board meeting here. I'm fixing coffee. I wake her up. And about 10 minutes into preparing my breakfast, I hear my mom weeping. And I, and I, walk, and I go and sit down next to her. And I go, Mom, are you okay? And she says, Rob, I don't know why, but I cannot get a hymn that my grandmother used to sing to me when I was a child out of my head. And it's causing me to weep. It's called Sweet Hour of Prayer. And I went, wow, that's a God thing, right? But I was late, so I had to go to the meeting. So I said, Mom, I hope I see you again, but I gotta go. So I went to the meeting, and then I came back, and she was still home, it was just her and I. And so I said, share with me about that prayer, Mom. So she started to tell me how her grandmother used to sing this song to her and tell her about the Lord. That's 85 years ago, by the way. I think this is a God deal, right? Holy Spirit moving type stuff, right? And, and I said, well, Mom, can I share with you one thing? She said, yeah. And I said, I said, I know you talk Jesus, but I've never seen you really commit. I've never seen you really understand that he is first. You've always kind of been first. She said, well, honey, I believe that's Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, I believe he just interpreted the dream. Uh, no worship, no first place. And I said, Mom, would you just let me share with you what the Bible says about that? She said, yes. And I said, look, 
I said, God absolutely loves you. And he has demonstrated that through his son. And I said, but I've always seen you take charge. I mean, she's, my mom's really sharp, really together. And I said, but I've never seen you submit to him. And I said, and one day, mom, you're going to have to give an account for your life, and you're going to fall short, way short. But God is making an offer, a free gift to you in his son, Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus came here? He is God, and he died for you personally, you. And he offers you the gift of heaven if you'll just receive, mom. It's more than just belief. It's received. God doesn't have your heart, mom. And she started to weep. She said, Rob, I need Jesus. And I'm saying, praise the Lord. And my mom received Christ in our living room. Church, is he your God? Is he sovereign? What has God done in your life? What's he doing right now that he's breaking in? What, what's, what's, what's going on? That's how he works. With Nebuchadnezzar, it was a dream. With my mom, it was a hymn. With me, it was my work. What's happening right now in your life? With that man, Chris, everything was falling apart. God had become a bystander in his life. Is God first? He wants to be first. He demands to be first. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, thank you, thank you for the grace that you've shown to this king. He didn't deserve it. Lord, he believed in himself. He didn't honor you, but yet you kept pressing in. Father, and each of us can have a testimony like that. But Lord, you demand worship. So Father, right now, I pray for those that are here that you've broken in. They're really uncomfortable. You had to stir the pot to get them to the point where they'll acknowledge you. And I pray for them this morning, Lord, those that know it's you, that they will respond in faith. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Could I have you stand with me? I want to speak to two types of people. One, Christian. You believe, and you've received Christ at some point in your life, but if we're honest, and I'm talking honesty here, he's not Lord. Somehow you've taken over, man. You got the reins back, and you think you got this life figured out. You don't. And God has stirred the pot in your life. There's something going on now, and you know what he wants is you to submit to him, guys. Humility. You're first. Second, if you were brought here and and you didn't know that to know God is Christ, you need to humble yourself. And your life might be kind of mixed up right now and not everything is clear, but I want to make it extra clear for you that Jesus offers himself for you and you have an opportunity to be right with God if you'll receive his son, Christ, submitting yourself in humility. Sometimes we wander and sometimes we just recognize that it's him. But both ways, God uses events, things in our life. And I want to right now offer up a prayer because a prayer is basically the same. It's a, it's a surrendering to Christ. So I want us to bow our heads as a church and if this is you, you can respond to this. But I'd like you to do something afterwards. I want you to come up and talk to somebody and share with them 
That's why we have people up here in prayer. So that you can confess to one another. So let's pray together. And then we'll close with a song. Father, if this is you, pray this in your heart after me. Father, I confess I, I've taken control of my life. I haven't honored you as God, as the sovereign one. Oh, I believe, but I don't trust. But Lord, right now, I surrender it all. I surrender my life to you. I confess Christ, for he died for me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Help me, Lord, to follow you all my days. May I never stray. I give you my life. I give you my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.